0: Welcome back to Podcast Recovery, everyone. We are your hosts, David O. And Eric B. Uh, today we are joined by our very special guest, Jem. How are you doing today? Uh, very well, day, thank you. Good. And uh, where are you from, Jem?
1: I'm uh, from England. I live in uh, a place called Batley, which is in West Yorkshire, which is in the north of England.
0: Hmm. Now, like, I have a quick question. Like, I... I personally can't tell the difference in a British accent, but can you tell the regional differences between British accents?
1: I can probably tell Deep South from New York, but I would think that's about the limit of my expertise as far as that's concerned.
0: Oh, okay, all right. Um, so uh, where was I? Uh, When were you first introduced to recovery?
1: Uh, I'm. Uh, this year, August the 6th, I will be 17 years in recovery. Um, I am 61 years of age now. Uh, I started my drinking career um, when I was 11. Mm. So that's just a quick snapshot of the timescales. So I suppose I've been sober for coming up to a third of my life now. Awesome. And
0: you, you answered my final question, which is how long have you been sober? So yeah, without... Yeah. Without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to you to share your story with us, so take it away.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, I suppose it starts, as these things do, with my drinking itself. Now, uh, I think these days, if I was at school, um, I would be diagnosed as ADHD. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Then I was just a naughty boy who couldn't shut up. Uh, I was the class clown rather than the class scholar, and really uh, was very hyperactive. And in the last year of what we call primary school, I suppose you call it elementary school, um, we came across um some illicit bottles of cider on our way home from school um mm-hmm. drunk them on the local park uh probably i think it was three or four of us uh got a little tipsy uh and we did this for most of that week mm-hmm um. Cut a long story short, as soon as that, as that alcohol got into my bloodstream, I just thought, yes, this is it for me. This is mm-hmm. this is what it's all about. It was like the sun coming out. Um, I felt for the first time, you know, we heard about people having a drink to knock the edges off, and it just calmed me enough to sort of... Yep. Uh, it quietened down all the noise in my head, uh, and I really enjoyed it. And I know from that moment on... Um, Obviously, I didn't develop a habit at 11 years old. The, mm-hmm. uh, the opportunity wasn't there. But certainly at family events and things like that, I'd always try and sneak a, uh, a nip of someone else's drink. Um, yeah. And as soon as I was able uh, to get hold of my own at pocket money prices at the age of 14 or 15, that's exactly what I did. I um, hung around with a peer group who um, had similar interests. And really, that was pretty much it. I sort of drank to get drunk uh, as part of my leisure, uh, from mm-hmm. then until when I stopped. And what's, the, what's the legal drinking age in England? Eighteen. Eighteen. Okay. Uh, that said, it's 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 very simple. I was drinking in pubs, bars, in the age of fourteen or fifteen. Um, mm. I was I was lucky. I was physically quite well developed. I think I got challenged maybe twice in bars, you know, between the ages of 15 and 18. Um, so I never had a problem getting served in, in, in pubs and bars. Um, and, of course, when I started work, which I did at the age of 17 full time, you know, it was it was no problem at all funding that habit. And I suppose as my income grew, so did my tolerance and so did my consumption. Um, Mm -hmm. and eventually led to the point when I was 45, um, when I wasn't going out at all, I was drinking sort of very strong lager, I don't know if you have it in the USA, it's called Carlsberg Special Brew, it it was, it's it's gone down to 8%, but it was 9%, so it's pretty strong stuff, Um, and that was my, that was my tipple of choice, was Carlsberg Special Brew, Um, and that, I would drink that any I wasn't working. In fact, it got to the point where I was working a night shift in a call centre for a bank, and I mm-hmm. would have two in my car, and in both my breaks, I would go out and have another one um, and top up. So there was never really a time when I was actually legally sober enough to drive, but I'm ashamed to say that's, that didn't actually mm. stop me. Uh, that wow. said, I never suffered... Um, Uh, I didn't lose any jobs. I didn't lose my driving license. I was never imprisoned. I was never even arrested. It didn't, on the surface of it, it didn't have profound negative effects. I was always working. Uh, I was maintaining a house and a a marriage. But in reality, I was utterly, utterly miserable until it came Mm -hmm. to the point when I was just, my recollection now is I was sat in the corner of my living room just rocking backwards and forwards and saying, I don't know what to do. Uh, mm-hmm. And that, that was my rock bottom. The very next day, I went to the, the doctors. Um, as they do, he gave me a prescription for antidepressants, uh, which wasn't really going to work fully because I was throwing depressant down my throat. But he did also mm-hmm. interrogate me on my drinking um, and expressed surprise at how much I was drinking um, and said, do you want to do something about that? And I said, yes. And he referred me to a, a local facility, an outpatient facility. Um, who I worked, I didn't actually get to see them for a couple of months. But when I did, I worked with the what we call the community psychiatric nurse um, for six to eight weeks on reduction, and then having mm-hmm. call a community detox, which consists of being given Librium, effectively. Well, you reduced down to perhaps half of what I was drinking, then. You stop drinking and you are uh, detoxed on Librium, starting off on quite a heavy dose and finishing on just like one tablet over four or five days. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's dealt with the withdrawals, got me out the other side. And really, amazing how it sounds, at the end of that process, where I was just released or told to, I was done, and, and left to my own devices. It's It's pure happenstance and good fortune that I actually worked out a roadmap map of my own as I went along um, which I now carry into my daily work as an alcohol counsellor and I actually worked out how to stay on the straight and narrow. The, the longer it goes on the more amazed I am that I actually managed that because uh, I see so many people in my day job relapsing but my own mm-hmm. experience was of, of continuous sobriety if you like. Mm. So that sort of brings up to the present day.
0: All right. We um, definitely have questions for you. Um, mm-hmm. Would Would you like to go first, Eric? No, go ahead, David. Oh, uh, I can go first. All right. Um, <laughs> good God, my cat's going crazy. Um, <laughs> just like knocked over three things and just ran into the bedroom. Um, oh dear! Yeah, that's the cat for you. Um, so you talked about, like, never ever being in jail, never uh, losing your driving license, all that. Do um, you think that, like, that lack of external consequences really aided in the progression of your alcoholism and allowed you uh, really, you know, a lot longer than maybe it, it should have or could have?
1: It's a really difficult hypothetical lot, because... Um... I don't know whether, you know, the the, the definition of addiction is, is is a continuous of a behavior, isn't it, despite the mm-hmm. consequences. So, yeah, I suppose it, I never really saw a need to stop because, again, everyone around me was was a drinker. And, mm-hmm. indeed, to this day, I mean, people want a better expression around me drink normally, but I, I happened to hang around with, with fairly heavy drinkers. So what mm-hmm. I did was normal. Um, and, yeah, there wasn't negative consequences or not profound negative consequences. I mm-hmm. I used to always say I didn't get a hangover, but in reality I just felt rubbish all the time, you know, uh, both in a mental health sense and, and physically. You know, I'd wake up in the morning feeling just rubbish, you know, yeah. under the weather, poorly. and uh, But nothing, you know, even then physically health-wise, my liver never suffered. I never had sort of big health problems. My mm-hmm. big problem was my, was eventually my mental health, but that took a long time to manifest itself. But I suppose the quick answer is yes. Um, the absence of of huge negative consequences. I suppose mm-hmm. it just didn't give me a reason really to address my drinking. That said, for many years, uh, my birthday is in February, and mm-hmm. I always used to at Christmas. Uh, obviously, I drink more. Uh, Christmas and New yeah. Year, so come to New Year, New Year's Day. I would say, right, that's it. I'm taking, um, I'm taking my time off. I'm putting my liver out to dry, and I would, I would go dry uh, from January till February the 12th, which is when my birthday is. Um, but oh, I was counting the days. I was counting the days. It really was. Yeah. There was no intention in my mind to ever look at long-term sobriety. That was never going to happen. That was impossible to imagine. Uh, mm-hmm. so come, come! My birthday, I would be on it, you know, full on mm-hmm. again. But uh, yeah, um, never really entertained the prospect. Never thought it was possible. Yeah. You know, it, our, our culture—it's—it's it's not. It's not possible to live without drink. It's—I uh, don't—I I don't know how similar. I've never been to the USA. I've been to Venice, Canada, but I don't know how central drink is to your culture. But certainly the way it's put across in, in in this country is that you need to have a drink to have a good time. That may mm-hmm. never be said overtly, but certainly the implication is the first thing that people say is, you know, about an event is, is there a bar, almost? Um yeah. We'll talk later, I'm sure, about, I'm, a, I'm now, I, I write poetry, and my sort of peer group tend to be other poets. Um, if mm-hmm. I go to a poetry night or an open mic night, the lovely thing about it is it's not about alcohol. It's about the words the camaraderie and you might see a couple of halves of lager. Um, but most people are drinking coffee and just getting off on the company. And that yeah. is so unusual in this country. It's right. you know, it's remarkable. It really is. Mm. All, right.
0: All, right. All right. Go ahead, David. <laughs> Like what, what you said about like uh, England's relationship with alcohol, how, how it's kind of, it's really like a central part of, uh, quote unquote, like having a good time. And like, that's that's pretty similar to here in America. Like we have uh, uh, like television, television shows on very frequently where it's always showing alcohol as being like center of the party. And and it's and it just always glorifies it and makes it really like it makes it look glamorous when in like in all reality alcoholism is very far from glamorous and you really getting in their own far from Um but yeah, it, it it is that sort of uh I don't know, spice of the part will which is, it's, a, it's a relationship with it, like you know, commercials. That glorify uh, usage. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, we have, I'm, I'm sure you've got regulatory bodies in the US as well regarding advertising. There's not such a lot of advertising of alcohol on, uh, on TV. Uh, I believe, I don't think spirits can be advertised on TV, but I think uh, I think they can be. I'm a bit out of there. I don't tend to, I, I tend to use a TiVo box so we fast forward to all the adverts but um, <laughs> mm-hmm. as I say I don't believe that alcohol well certainly alcohol advertised less than it used to be but the Advertising Standards Authority um, their code of practice does say that alcohol cannot be glamorised and sort of positioned in a way which makes you look more glamorous or more sexually attractive to the opposite sex whatever and also mm-hmm. that uh, that that um, alcohol must not be marketed to younger people mm-hmm. uh, both of those are, are clearly flouted every alcohol I've uh, you've ever seen promotes it as a glamorous lifestyle choice and I think there's, um, there's an American comedian called Dennis Leary he used to do a routine about bubblegum schnapps you know he used to sort of say that alcohol should make you want to pull a face you know and bubblegum schnapps was, was cheating because that was just you know a a kid's drink, and that's effectively what it is. When you get things like alcoholic lemonade and things like that, that's clearly aimed at younger people. They can't pretend otherwise. But you know, we we have this sort of façade that the way it's marketed is ethical. The the annoying thing in in this country, and again, I don't know if you have it there, is at the moment um, gin and prosecco are these sort of heavily marketed drinks and you'll see, you know, you'll see them marketed on, on memes on social media, you know, and it's wine o'clock and things like that, and in in ways that really promote drinking a Prosecco and gin or whatever as as essential in our stressed lives. Now, we know the reality of it is that if, actually if you don't drink, your life just usually becomes a lot less stressed, so you don't need to drink, but... That's sort of quite
2: a well-kept secret, now, I think. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, kind of talking what David was saying with um <clears throat> with America and the way you know alcohol is perceived here, it's it's almost a part. Like, I, I feel like, and I don't know, I I only consume, you know, I, I've been to Europe, I haven't been to to uh, the UK, but mm. it's. It seems like it's it's definitely integrated in a different way there than it is here. It seems like our culture mm-hmm. in America is more binge yeah. culture. Um, so it's uh, it's yeah. really not about oh yeah we're, we're going to have drinks to have a good time. It's like no we're going to have drinks to get fucked up. Um, and that's kind of like you know it's it's ingrained in like weddings in like and I feel like weddings are everything. But like sports like I don't know I can't even go yeah. like games like I can't really separate going to a like you know, the Ravens game and drink, like it's Mm -hmm. even after all these years going to football games, I still feel like, like, you know, I mean, I, I've done it many times and I haven't drank, but it was like, you know, it was for years and years and years. Um, but yeah, it seems like it's, it's a very much, and maybe it's the same over there where it's like, you know, binge drinking, but at least for a certain time, it does seem like binge drinking here is more of the culture.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think. Yeah. It's maybe. It's It's more twenty four seven. But certainly, I recognise the sporting link because for many many years, I I followed. Well, you call it soccer. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. The the, the the trip to the pub beforehand, uh, before the game. The trip to the bar at the sports ground, you know, at half time, and then the trip to the pub straight after the game was just part of the whole experience, that's what you did. Um, yeah. And, you know, oddly enough, I was, a, I was a really, and when I stopped going to games, I'd go and watch on the big screen in the pub and just drink throughout the game. Um, and that's thats actually part of the culture now. You know, we watch on satellite TV, you go to the pub to watch your favourite side. Um, and oddly enough, when I stopped drinking, I, 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 over time, I became less and less interested uh, in football, soccer, and now I don't watch it at all. It's almost as if uh, the alcohol gave me that sort of false passion about the game and now really, do you know, I'm not that bothered. I've got so mm-hmm. much more going on in my life now. I don't have to enjoy my life vicariously by watching 22 people run around a piece of grass and it yeah. just literally, it, it just doesn't impact on me. And half the time, to be honest with you, I used to get so loaded watching a game that afterwards, they asked me half an hour what had happened. I couldn't tell you. <laughs> yeah,
0: so, you know why? Bother? Yeah, I believe it. I have yeah. a few games yeah. like
1: that. <laughs>
0: um. All right. right Actually, remember,
1: I remember remember games from being a schoolboy far better than I remember games from your thirties and forties. But there you go. <laughs> yeah.
2: So my next question, my question. <clears throat> Is that you're a counselor and an alcohol therapist, right? So Yeah. Mm-hmm. How I, I think one of the hard things I, I think it's a very difficult job, what you do. And one of the things mm-hmm. that I always I'm I'm kinda curious about, because it kind of creates this gray area in I guess your recovery is how do you separate your individual recovery from the recovery that you you know, like, I mean, the, the therapy and the counseling that you do with others. Because, uh, I mean, you you kind of have to create a line there,
1: right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it's quite a boundary practice. And there's a couple of points I'd make. First of all, um, I didn't... I always knew I wanted to be a counselor because I was so inspired by the person that helped me. And that was the that was the spark, if you like. I just thought, you know, one day I want to do her job. Having said that, it was it was five or six years before I even started to train. And of course, the training itself was two or three years of volunteering and academic stuff. Um, But a category, I think that most people make about counselling is think it's about talking. It's not. It's more about listening. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a difference between general counselling, which I do and love, when alcohol rarely enters the mix and the alcohol work, when clearly people generally suss out that you, that's where you come from, that you're an ex-drinker. Uh, yeah. But my job in that respect is not someone's telling him how I did it and, and what they should do. It's more about portraying um, an example, if you like, of someone who is strong and happy in sobriety. Mm-hmm. I know Going through early sobriety, I didn't have any role models in that respect. I didn't know anybody who'd done it, and I think that's one of the hardest things about it. No one could mm-hmm. draw me a picture of how good sobriety looked. So, to be honest with you, I went along with society's belief that it, it, it must look pretty boring. When actually, mm-hmm. um, I'm sure, I hope anyway, that my clients now look at me and think, well, he doesn't have a boring life. He seems happy. Yeah. Um, I've been doing zoom sessions this week and I had an initial zoom session with a client last week. And the first thing he said to me, my God, you look healthy. Mm. And I thought, yeah, if that's the image I'm putting across, then that's working. Um, I hope the image that I put across is someone that's happy and healthy and has a full life. Uh, even mm. though I don't drink, well, you know, when, when you're talking to someone and it's the way you. you I'll use we rather than you. I'll say, you know, we know this to be true and things like that. Um, yeah. So they'll, they'll suss pretty early on that you come from the same place as them. It doesn't have to be overtly stated usually. Uh, and you can see them thinking, yeah, yeah, maybe it can do this. And that's, that's my job, if you like, to paint a picture of happy sobriety. Mm. so there is a line there I mean clearly I wouldn't say to someone uh, this is where I fall out we're going to talk later on I'm not sure about the fellowship but um, I have a lot to do with AA and with people you know in the fellowship and there's a lot of that the, the techniques the 12 steps that I take forward and use my own practice But I'm not one for you know a single roadmap for everyone my job as I see is to try and tailor an approach that fits individual it wouldn't necessarily fit into the AA orthodoxy. Um, because mm. that leaves an awful lot of people out of the loop, doesn't it? There are people that get along with AA, there are people that thrive, flourish, and find AA fits them perfectly. There's a lot of people it doesn't work for, and that's the people that I'm trying to get to. Uh, awesome. So just a just a awesome.
2: follow-up question to what you just said right there, where, where AA doesn't work for, let, let's say... Um, you know, someone you're going to meet in the rooms, or some like someone like a client. How mm. well, how do you go about if AA isn't their answer? How do you go about finding what their answer is?
1: Again, mm. a lot of it's by listening, um, uh, and I always think with there's two things for me with sobriety. First of all, people make the error that sobriety or or, or even abstinence. Um, is about giving up one thing. Well, actually, it's not. It's about giving up lots and lots of small behaviours. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's about addressing each one of those drinking cues and doing something differently for each of those situations. And that takes time. It's not just about put down the drink. That's when it's that's when recovery starts, as we know. It's then dealing with all those behaviours and that alert behaviour that made us drink, all those different little occasions. Um I lost my tread a bit there. Sorry. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. As I would say it's not. It's not about one behaviour. It's, it's about lots, and it's not. I used to always think that I would spend the rest of my life missing drink, and actually, when I replaced my drinking with other more enjoyable behaviours, and that took quite a long time. I actually remember thinking at six months in, thinking, do you know, actually, I prefer this. I enjoy this life. Uh, you know, I'm waking yeah. up feeling great. I'm doing other things. My relationships are better. Physically and mentally, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously much better. And at that point, I realized I'd turned a corner because I was no longer thinking about sobriety in terms of the absence of something. I was thinking that, um, about sobriety in terms of the enhancement in my life. You know how much things have improved, and I think that's the that's the mental shift that everyone's got to make before they, they settle into this. Uh, yeah, I don't think if that happens, you can get if you if I live my life missing alcohol, that would be bloody torture. To be honest with you, I hate it. Yeah, as it is, I only ever think about it in relationships and my job. I certainly don't think about it with any sense of yearning. Not at all. Never.
0: Mm. That's awesome. Mm, all right. Um, hmm, where do I want to go? <laughs> um, all right. So, so you talked about like early, like, um, during like your detox and then finding your, your own, uh, roadmap into recovery and, and mm. you were, you were, you were pretty vague about it. So, um, did you, was it, uh, like fellowship based or um did you like seek your like your own individual education into recovery? Like how did that early recovery uh, go and like where where did you where did you take yourself and uh, to stick with the roadmap analogy, which avenue did you take?
1: First six months um I was very conscious um that I felt very uncomfortable around alcohol and, and around drinkers. Um, mm. And then know I would do. And my wife at the time, uh, I eventually split up with. Uh, she was still drinking quite heavily and quite destructively, I thought. So I even had to take a distance from her. Uh, but I didn't mm. leave. I don't think, I, I, Apart from going to work, I don't think I left the house. I left the house once in six months to go to a wedding, which I had mm. to go to. Otherwise, it would have upset a lot of people in my family. Um, I went to one wedding, Um, I literally lasted about an hour, uh, made my apologies and left. Um, Other than that, I didn't go out. On six months, I thought to myself, well, I really need to start going out and about and getting some more support. So I did actually go to to half a dozen AA meetings. I thought, well, they're the guys, you know, they've, they've got the expertise, they've got, you know, and there's always meetings. So I went to six meetings and then just thought to myself, I don't think that is me. And mm-hmm. once a week at a given time wasn't really fitting in for me either. I was working night shift. The only meeting I could get to was lunchtime on a Tuesday when I'd just finished two night shifts and I was knackered. Um, mm-hmm. So that wasn't really working for a lot of reasons. So I thought, gonna, I need to find something different. So I went online and found um, online sobriety forums. And again, a lot of these were fellowship-based, um, mm-hmm. but I, I sort of threw myself in and, and started sort of contributing and started having conversations with people online until eventually I um, I actually ran a small forum, uh, a little website, which gave support, to, I don't know, probably like 20, 30 people who were on that one. Um, uh, and that carried on for, uh, you know, I think a couple of years, the online stuff, uh, mm-hmm. before I started um, thinking about perhaps going into... You know uh, this sort of work um, so yeah initially I didn't have a roadmap I, sort of, I fumbled my way along and was fortunate enough to find the right route but the right route for me was certainly online resources you know online forums and things like that and I, it's still something I recommend to a lot of people because there's a lot of shame in in, in addiction um, and I think on online recovery forums you can be who you want to be and you can divulge what you want to divulge, Uh, you communicate safely. And they're there 24-7, aren't they? You don't have to go to a a church hall at a certain time. You get up in the middle of the night and feel like you're lonely or you're crazy or whatever. You log on, you talk to someone. There's there's someone always there. And I have friends Mm -hmm. all around the world now that I've met on forums. Um, You know, (laughs) just an example, uh, I, I need someone at the moment to do me a cover um, from a collection of poetry I'm putting together. And I contacted a lass in Wisconsin that I know is an artist and in recovery and asked her would she consider doing me an illustration? She's come back and said, Absolutely fine, send me some, uh, send me some ideas and I'll put something together for you. Now, that is not something I, I would have had been able to do before. Yeah. So I, it, I, it's a marvelous, the, the internet, as we know, is, uh, can be a force for good and a force for bad. But certainly
2: for me, it's been very much a force for good in my recovery. Awesome. Mm-hmm. All right. So, I let me think how to. So, all right. So, you're you're an artist, and or you know, like a poet, writer, artist, and you're yeah. you're talking about how you're going to stand up, and you're in the community, and within artist communities. Um, you know i i'm I guess I would call myself a musician and a photographer um, and a videographer, but you know in those communities there there is a lot of drug use and there's a mm. lot of party and partying and there i mean there is um there's something to be said about disengaging yourself from the physical world to create, and a lot of people do that yes. So how do you manage those relationships with that community without letting yourself fall into kind of the trap that I can live that same life?
1: What? Do you mean if I see such behavior, how do I sort of – how do I – not participate. How do I keep away from it? You mean
2: well. Like, how do you also, man- yeah, how do you manage with it too? I mean, not not necessarily keep away from it because that's keeping away from, um, I guess, like your pursuits, right? Where like you are going to have to go to like maybe a bar to uh, do stand up or you know um, mm-hmm. something like that. But you know how how do you not let the your environment invoke an urge or a trigger? Um, that,
1: you know, might be lingering? Do you know, I think the only answer is, is, is sort of constant reinforcement. It has no attraction for me, literally no attraction for me. I see people who are under the influence and I don't want to be that person. Um, I don't want to be the person that's staggering a bit, that's slurring my words, that's repeating the same story three, four, five times. Uh, it holds no charm for me at all. I see it for what it is. I see the emperor without his clothes and think, no, nah, that's not for me. Uh, that sounds terribly pious to say it that way. But really, um, I was actually, I still see some people that I saw at school. I used to, used to know at school, we, we tend to get together, we used to get together for, you know, a good old pub crawl. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: every year just before Christmas and uh, I, I, just, I until quite recently I, I saw them, still saw them on at least an annual basis and recently, I mean within the last uh, year um, I saw one of, the, I didn't know I'm abstinent I go out with them and to be honest I drink alcohol free lager and I'm out with them it doesn't bother me in that respect so that doesn't even mm-hmm. trigger me and I was out with them and one of them actually said to me would you like to try would you like some cocaine? And I oh. loved him. I loved him, absolutely aghast, and I thought, I'm astounded you could even think to offer, um, a class A drug to a recovering alcoholic, you know, what are you thinking? I was, yeah. I, was I was amazed and actually quite insulted that he should do that, and I can say this, because actually subsequently, the guy who did it has actually, has died. Um, um, uh, and he was younger than me, but it he, he was actually um, uh, cancer, um, uh, intestinal cancer, uh, you know, bowel mm-hmm. cancer. Um, but I'm, I'm sure it was connected to his his leisure pursuits. And this guy never missed a, a pub opening. He was drinking, you know, every day, pretty much most of the day. So it, it's bound to have an effect. But anyway, he, he offered me this, and I was like, I can't believe it. And he was, he acted suitably chastised, and I, I saw him again on a on a holiday on a, um, a canal barge, um, and there were half a dozen dozen of us on this. And he, he again said, "Well, I've got some I've got some coke, but I won't do it in front of you, Jem. It's okay, i we'll we'll do it the other end of the boat." And I was like, <laughs> do "You know, I'm not bothered. You can do it in front of me. It holds no attractions for me whatsoever. I was just upset that he'd asked me." So I suppose the quick answer is there's nothing there for me. I I always say uh, it's a bit like uh, a nut allergy. I I really, really love cashew nuts. I really do. Mm. But if I had a nut allergy, which I knew, you know, literally the smallest trace of a peanut would kill me, I would never Mm. touch another one. So it's the same mm-hmm. principle for me. In that sense, I am. I know it doesn't fit the scientific ne- the definition of of, uh, of allergy, but in real terms, I'm allergic to alcohol and by definition, other drugs as well because I've got that sort of mind. Uh, so mm-hmm. I don't do it. You know, yeah. I, and that's accepted by all the people I, I see socially and, you know, um, it's never it's never a temptation, never a temptation at all.
0: Hmm. I, I think the nut allergy really uh, hit home with Eric because that's uh, definitely something he can relate to. is, yeah. that, is that right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that that mm-hmm. he, I, I think I can speak for you a little bit, Eric. And I, I, you you always seem to in you enjoy the the allergy analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Real quick, just like a, a a fun question, like, not really a question, but just like a roundtable thing. Why do they call it a pub crawl? Like, that makes it sound so, it, it makes it sound gross. Well, There's just nothing attractive about that, it's, and it's just very visual of just people just but on David, David and knees about it. trying to because, get that Well, yeah,
2: because you're going to pub, to pub, to pub, to pub, to pub. By the end of the pub no, like, it, crawl, you're going to be crawling to the next pub, game,
0: like a, like like a pub parade. Like it would make it sound more attractive, like a pub crawl. Like it just in my mind, like a, a pub crawl just sounds so it, it, it just gross. It's just like oh god, you're crawling down the sidewalk to the next drink. It's just like I think there's this,
1: this two there's two sort of. Uh, definitions if you like to crawl one is literally crawling on your hands and knees like a toddler yeah. but I think it's more a crawl is something you describe used to describe slow progress um,
0: oh, okay so
1: if yep. you're crawling in traffic you're going really yeah. slowly and I think the analogy is that as you proceed with this visiting bar after bar after bar it gets slower and slower um, yeah the, the other All thing right. we have in this country is if we have we have certain High streets, certain, you know, uh, routes which may have a pub every 200 yards or so. And there might be, I don't know, six to ten. And the idea is you visit every single one, have a drink in each one. And they tend to be called runs. We have a couple around here called the Westgate Run, the Otley Run. You do have the whatever crawl, uh, but generally it tends to be a run because it's a run of bars and pubs. Um, Okay. Sure. Sort of taken over, but yeah. I mean, these days, I don't know if you know or not. We uh, there's literally in this country one or two pubs closing every single week. Uh, I think the number of pubs there's there's half the number there was ten years ago, for example. Really? Um, really? I think two two factors. I think basically because uh, it's an expensive pursuit. It always used to be cheaper drinking in pubs than at home, and now that's reversed. People have more leisure pursuits rather than going out for a drink. You know, people will stay at home with a bottle of wine and Netflix, for example. But also the big factor was that we're not allowed now to smoke in pubs. Uh, oh, so That drove oh. a lot of people out because you have to smoke outside in a designated shelter. And, of course, oh. a lot of people find that, you know, again, to quote Dennis Leary, those two things go together, don't they, beer and a cigarette? So it drove a lot of people to drinking at home. It's a lot cheaper and you know, as I say, you you get to choose your own TV and your own company at home. So pubs themselves are closing at quite a significant rate at the moment here. Wow. Mm-hmm. I know that. Not,
0: that's, that's sort of what it was. it's sort of synonymous like with like with England. Like you, you think of a few things, you think of like Buckingham Palace, the like Big Ben, Stonehenge and the pub. Yeah, just right in there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, part of my growing
1: up. I used to love pubs, uh, but nowadays they're full of the sort of people you don't really want to spend time with. So, unless it's what we call a gastro pub—that's to say, a pub which does good food—and there are yeah. a few up onto those—I um, will not usually bother. And it's you know, and as I say, it's not out of, it's not out of a sense of feeling endangered. They're just not the sort of places I choose to hang out in.
0: Simple as that, yeah. really. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Uh, now to my to a real question. Mm-hmm. So, like you talk, you talked about, uh, like you touched on it a little bit in your counseling, uh, talking about that that we aspect, um, mm-hmm. like with your, your your patients and your counseling sessions. Um, so how does that that we level um, and and really like putting yourself in the same boat with with whoever you're talking to whoever you're counseling how does that help you bridge some of the gaps um during your counseling to really have that that connection
1: um it's i think i'd even expand it i mean that people recognize that i have myself struggled from it with with addiction and some people say oh of course you get it you understand and I always mm-hmm. say, like, I understand my situation. I understand <clears throat> I've had a problem. So I understand what I did about it. And, but that's not the same as understanding what you can do. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I'll, I'll try and sort of find common ground in other respects as well. For example, if I'm in someone's home and they have a picture of a dog on the mantelpiece that's clearly mm-hmm. no longer with us. I'll say, was that your dog? And they'll say, oh, yeah, that was so-and-so. He was a lovely animal. He was, You know, he's my constant companion. And then we can sit and talk about dogs for a while because I'm a big, big dog fan. You know, mm-hmm. it's about finding that common ground, if you like, as much as anything else, not just around addiction but around yeah. Yeah, life itself. Um, mm-hmm. And, again, if someone will say, oh, of course, you get it because you've, you've had a problem yourself. i say, well, yeah. I was drinking for a long while, but I've done a lot of training for this role as well. You know, it's not just about the fact that I, I was a drinker. I've done an yeah. awful lot. i 10 years, you know, 12 years of training experience and, and that counts for a lot as well. So I think it gets you in the door, if you like, it gets your foot in the door, yeah. but yeah. unless you really know what you're doing, um, unless you've got a, a lot of, should we say, arrows in your quiver, a lot of, you know, a lot of tools in your box to help people. Um, yeah, you will not succeed. And again, there's, I'm sure you know there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, uh, there's more failures than there are victories in, in the recovery trade. You know, we mm-hmm. uh, we're only successful with um, a minority of people. Um, yeah, that that's just the nature of the beast, isn't it? Yeah. Mm.
0: Perfect. What about you, Eric?
2: Um. So, hmm. So, I guess, you know, oh. he, what, David? We've made him speechless. No, no. I'm, I'm <laughs> debating on what question to ask. Um, yeah, I know. So, like, looking at, you know, how you've utilized the web to be part of your recovery. Um, yeah. How how would you classify like your recovery as a whole from a holistic perspective of like therapy and, you know, web-based, um, uh, recovery, like in what way do you define, you know, the future of your recovery and how, how are you evolving, um, you know, with the times, um, and incorporating new forms of recovery into your daily program?
1: I'm constantly, constantly reading. Um, I think that's the thing. Uh, we have something in counselling called continuous professional development. Um, yeah. And I, I'm I'm, I'm becoming a recovery nerd. I'm becoming, <laughs> you know, I, I read constantly of different approaches. I mean, the two books on my um, nightstand at the moment are um, uh, The Hungry Ghost Book by Gabon Maté, and Mm -hmm. uh, i've got one called the naked mind i can't remember the lady's um the lady's name but that's that's a recovery book as well i tend to sort of at any time i'll have a novel there and um a sobriety book there or a recovery book there and I, i tend to sort of go between the two so i'm constantly constantly reading um about different approaches and different techniques in recovery um and I actually wrote an article for a blog the other day about the 12 steps. You know, as I say, my, I'm, not, I'm not with the fellowship, but I do know the 12 steps and I do recognize the utility of them and the, the sum that I really pick out and say, yeah, that is absolutely right. And, and one of those is obviously the 12 step is, you know, carrying the message to the still suffering alcoholic. That yes. is something I do every day of my life. Uh, mm. so it would be foolish of me to sort of negate the steps when that is probably of them all that's the one that helps me the most um, mm. is, is doing that work is helping people you know you've got to to keep what you've got you've got to give it away and I again I used to rail against these little cliches that are used in the fellowship and now I've I seen them for what they are and that's an extraordinarily good reason an extraordinarily good way of reminding us how good recovery is and, and, and the value of it and the utility of it, um, I no longer I, as I say, I used to sort of disrespect the 12 steps. I don't do that anymore. I absolutely fully recognize how useful they are. Um, and again, I used to laugh at people, not laugh, but you know, I, I used to scoff at mm. the notion of a spiritual recovery to me. you know it was you drank too much, you put the drink down, you stopped. It was as simplistic as that, but I now recognize that, yes, spirituality to me, I'm a a, a practicing Christian, but spirituality to me initially was just recognizing that something was was out there that was more important than me. And to an alcoholic Mm -hmm. or to an addict, that's pretty pretty big, isn't it, really? (laughs) To realize that something's actually bigger and more important than you are Mm -hmm. is pretty revolutionary. Um, so uh, you know again I've I've seen the value of that and I think I I, I think sobriety in time makes you quite humble uh, because you realise how lucky you are that you've got out the other side of it and you realise that not everyone can do that and sadly we lose a lot of bodies don't we, we lose a lot of people Mm -hmm. and the the longer you go the more you realise you know I've got 17 years in nearly and I just there's not a day that I don't you know, thank God that I got to where I've got um, mm. and appreciate what I've got. It's wonderful. I mean, again, I'm sure you've had the same question asked of you. People ask me if I had no time again, would I still be an addict and an alcoholic? And I say absolutely I would because if I wasn't, I wouldn't fully appreciate what I've got now, mm. which is, by any standards, a fabulous life. You know, I've not, I've not got loads of money. You know, I might not I even have the best job in the world as far as most people are concerned, but I'm happy, I'm I'm content, I have a nice house, I've nice a car on the drive, and a good rewarding job. You know? That's pretty good from where I'm sat.
0: Hmm. Yeah. All right. So I got uh, one one last question, and it's uh it's gonna be a fun question. Okay. So <laughs> So what is the the weirdest or the strangest thing that you have found about Americans? Oh, do you know,
1: you want to move too controversial now and I might offend i hope I doubt. i hope I doubt.
0: No, please um, be controversial. We love it. And I cannot believe I mean I, 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 I'm I'm we we've gone through a, a a pretty
1: much revolution recently in this country with Brexit. We now have mm-hmm. a guy called Boris Johnson in charge, <laughs> yeah,
2: Boris neither Johnson. of which
1: I'm in favor with. But as long as I tell you what, I'll tell you, I'll put this into context. Um, the last time I really felt like I needed a drink uh, was November the 9th, 2016. Um, my wife Don't woke worry. me up and her first words to me, Donald Trump's been elected president. Mm-hmm. And I, my first thought, and I kid you now, I'm not making this up, my first thought was I could really go out and get loaded on that. I really, <laughs> I really feel like getting pissed. Um, and without, this might sound hyperbolic, but I, I was four years old when JFK was shot. And I remember how devastated my mum was. And I yeah. think in a small way I felt the same way. I actually thought that the world was in danger. And that depressed mm. me. And, it, and my first thought was, I really, really needed a drink. It took me the whole day to get over that. And funnily enough, I, I got over it by watching um, a program called Elementary, which you probably know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's a reworking of the Sherlock Holmes stories yep. with Johnny Lee mm-hmm. Miller and Lucy Liu. And a lot of it is about recovery. And it's it's very cleverly dealt with. It's not dealt with on a superficial level, it's very subtly dealt with. So you can get it on two levels. You can watch it as a police procedural, or you can watch it as quite a clever study of a guy struggling with recovery. Uh and I watched that and there was there was a couple of things in it that made me think, you're okay, Jimmy, you've got this. Uh but yes, that was that is the weirdest thing I can think of about Americans. But as I say, I look closer to home and think, we haven't exactly got it right over here either, but I cannot believe that he actually. I mean, I can't believe he stood for president and was successful in these nomination, let alone was elected. But yeah, as I say, if that's controversial, I apologise. No, 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 it's
0: totally fine. I, I, I'm in the same boat with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Mm. Well, David. All right. Wait, what? Eric. I, I, I kind I, I want to ask you. The, the, the flip side of that question: What 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 do you find uh, weird about about British people? <laughs> uh-huh. I, I've always asked like our, our, our I always ask like our, our uh, foreign speakers like what do you guys find weird about us? But I've never done it the other way. Yeah. Um. I I, I actually I'm I want to go first. I uh-huh. like I, <laughs> I I find it strange how how British people like. You guys all come off as just extraordinarily proper. <laughs> I don't. You know I, mean? I don't. Like, I don't
2: think you've met enough British people, man. I. I think like this is like I, this is you kind of like being a little distant from all of it. I mean, that,
0: that, that's that's very much. Is the, it the, the accent? The public eye. Is, it, is it the
2: accent or the, like the
0: perception? I think it is the accent. The, that the accent and 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 just the, the the royalty of it and it there there just seems to be uh, uh, an air of of, of proper uh, properness in in England that is, is just not the case here in America. You guys seem just far more eloquent and 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 well spoken than us and I, I don't get me wrong I've, I've met uh, quite a few. Cockney english people and, yeah. and but as a whole i just I just see you guys as extraordinarily like prim and proper and upright, and it's just like yeah, w- way to go england <laughs> we are very
1: careful who we let out of the country to represent ourselves. that's what it is <laughs> yeah
0: that, that's true you don't see the what worst of us <laughs> I, what about you eric what do you, What do you find strange um yeah.
2: I I haven't honestly given it that much thought. Uh, I all I can say about the UK is I is I love the television that comes out of it. Huge oh, fan yeah. of Doctor oh, yeah. Who, Mighty Boosh. Um, what, what what am I watching? Am I watching anything? I'm, I'm watching uh, Toast of London right now. Um, yeah. Oh, and- and you
0: guys created the, the the finest comedy team in history. Monty Python is, ju- is just the top.
1: Yeah, yeah, I go along with that. I go along with that.
0: But um, there's just there's, there's no competition.
1: Too, I'm a too.
0: Admirer of a lot of American
1: comedy. I'm, I mean, Seinfeld, for example, I could watch all day. Mm. You've got you've got a lot of quality TV these days. You really have. I'm not Thank just you. saying that honestly. From this perspective, you're. Your, some of your TV shows And again I think on both sides Of the Atlantic There's a lot of drafts Isn't there We only see the best Of each other's products uh, Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, Well that's, well, that's, that's all because, We're good at nowadays We we can't make cars Or steel anymore So we can no. make television shows That's yeah. all Yeah <laughs> not, not wrong with that mate Not wrong with that Alright I'm sorry I, I interrupted you Eric What do you find strange? I don't really I,
2: I'm not Yeah i, I I, I mean, I think Boris Johnson's pretty strange um, on the oh, on the flip oh, side yeah. of what Jem's talking about. Um, i I, th- I was watching something where he he actually uh, messes up his hair intentionally before he goes out, and I thought that was brilliant. Absolutely true. Like I was like, yeah, oh my God, true. that's so fu-. like that's so clever. Like you're intentionally mm-hmm. making yourself look like a mess to kind of disarm mm-hmm. people. It's a brilliant like marketing strategy. Um, very, I mean, it's it's kind of like the counter to Trump, where like he's using like these really like, I, and I hate to say like intelligent, but I they're they're good PR and like communication type um, like external communication yeah. um, tactics. And Boris Johnson does that, mm-hmm. and it's it's fascinating. Um, I mean, it, you it's might not just
1: his hair. Yeah, go ahead. And it's his whole stick. Yeah. And this bumbling thing comes across. He's actually incredibly calculating. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: No, I've I've like I've oh, watched yeah. a few shows about it and read like a few articles, and I'm like, wow, like this is like it's kind of like uh Nixon, um one of the big things with Nixon when when he faced off against Kennedy, um, and like that was one of the first uh you know, elections that was um televised was it showed a lot about, like, external communication and how how to use that in the media. And I feel like Boris Johnson is, like, really, really fucking smart in using, like, that act to kind of disarm people. Um, I think that's kind of strange. But, I mean, as far as, like, I I mean, I think the music's great. I think, like, the television content's great. Oh, Um, Oh, yeah. So, I mean... Only praise from my end, David. Where, yeah, I, I where, don't Where focus would, we,
0: on where the, would uh... we be? Huh? I don't know. I, I, don't, I just... We all have little quirks about <laughs> us. Like, the Canadians are, are very quirky people. We're very quirky people. So are the English. So are the French. Mm-hmm. So are the Italians. Mm-hmm. We're all weird. And I just like to, like to have a little fun with it, you know? Yeah. No, yeah. I, I, I agree with you 100%, Eric. Where would we, where would we be without... Uh, the Beatles and and Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and all those amazing, amazing. Uh, we've talked. We've that talked have, about have come this. Come off that beautiful island.
2: We've you and oh, I have yeah. had in depth conversations about the influence of that yeah. era, and I strongly, I, I think the Beatles. You can make a, you can make the case the Beatles are definitely the most influential band, but I I think there's a strong oh, yeah. case for the Velvet Underground um, to at least be two. And a lot of people disagree with me on that. But I think the Velvet Underground, without them, you are missing a lot of music.
1: Mm. You yeah, see, and, to and, me, and I'm, what, I'm Detroit. What? I'm all about Detroit. Yeah, I'm
0: all oh, about I'm very gaudy.
1: Yeah, okay. absolutely. Oh, right. first love. Yeah. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And, I, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't throw Black Sabbath out into the into the airwaves. Well, so we've, Sabbath, you and you get, I have talked about this. Birmingham. You and
2: I have talked about Black yeah. Sabbath, and like, yes, they're super influential to that genre, like to that genre and its subgenres. Um, yes. But yes. I, I think like we won't get into a whole. I music just thing. had to give them air time. I, no, We're not and like, to get into it. I d- said, we won't. No, well, I mean, no, we could get in, no. we could That's get into it. Podcast. I mean, Velvet Underground, if you look at the Velvet Underground, they they influence new wave, they influence grunge, they influence indie, they influence yeah. shoegazer. I mean, their their influence is so deep. Um, but but yeah, well, I digress. Okay,
1: so yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll close with one thing, Eric, and I must I must implore you, I must do a poem at the end if I'm do nothing else, but mm-hmm. I will tell you now the best way to get into an argument and I've done this myself with a Beatles fan, is to say that as far as I'm concerned, Rappers Delight like by the Sugar Hill Gang is more influential on music than the entirety of the Beatles back catalogue. And put your crash arm on and walk away, Ooh. because that will oh. just set them
0: off. I, I, there's an
1: element of truth there. There's a lot of rap and hip-hop in a lot of popular music these days, but they do not God like God bless you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it, that, that is a very well-put well point. <laughs> yeah. I mean I like to be a
0: controversialist, but there you go. That's no, no, it. Oh, def- it definitely it I I could sense the temperature go up about eight degrees when you I, said that. I mean but we'll move there, on there we'll is, move
2: on. Yeah, there there is something to say about the Sugar Hill gang. I I'll have to I'll have to come I'll have to like right. look into that a little bit. Um but okay, okay, we'll go we'll go to the next part. David,
0: go ahead. It's, it, it's that time to go to the Twitter, ladies and gentlemen, for your questions from the airwaves and the internet. No so,
2: this week, the Twitter question is from um, Addictivist. Addictivist? Activitist? Something like Addict. Addictivist? Addictivist, I think, yeah. Um, yes. So, and the way this works is, Jem, you'll go first, then David, and then myself. So, with resources yeah. unlimited, what would be your vision for the ideal rehab center?
1: Yeah, I, you know, you've got me there because I have no experience whatsoever of residential rehab. I would actually say I would rather than having a rehab center, I would rather have the um, facility for a really intensive rehab in the community. Cause my big problem with rehab is that rehab is a bubble. Mm-hmm. And once someone is released from rehab and goes home sober, um, then they go back to the same things that got them drunk in the first place. Uh, mm. and I, I, I see it fail so many times. Uh, I say, you know, I hear about people coming out of rehab and lapsing within weeks and months. And I think no, uh, I I would actually prefer them to do it in the community and learn to live life on life's terms in the presence of all those stresses mm-hmm. and stimulants and triggers, and that would more of an exposure be, therapy type thing. I always say total immersion. You know, if, you've, yes. if you yeah, if you need if you want to get recovered, recovered, you need to live recovery. And I think you need to live that amongst your family and friends and make those decisions about what you keep and what you what you walk away from in that community. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to see, a, we have, um, with the charity I work for, we have a 12-week recovery program um, where people come three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, it's four-hour sessions, and it, we go through all the things that you learn in rehab, but then they get to go home at the end of the day. And again, there's a, there's a high dropout rate, but the, you know, the people who graduate at the end of that 12 weeks, you've never seen such big beaming smiles. It's a wonderful occasion when that happens. Mm. So I'd rather, a quick answer, I'd rather see it properly resourced and happen in the community.
0: Hmm. All right. Um, I, me personally, what would be mine and like how I would, I would set up mine. Uh, it's kind of the exact opposite. I, I, I would kind of, I, I would pull people, uh, out of that uh, um, uh, environment, and, and put them back into more the natural environment. Like I, I really think nature uh, mm. is is very healing for for so many people, even city people. When they when they get when when they can truly immerse themselves for a, a good amount of time in in the forest and the mountains and everything like that, it, it can give you a level of clarity uh, that that it, it's, a, it, it's only attainable away from all those distractions. So like, mm. I feel a little bit of time away from those distractions. I, like, I would love for uh, all, all, all of internet recovery to be available to them. I would love a, a, an extensive library of all sorts of, uh, of poetry and, and, and recovery-based books and, and self-help books uh, at, at at their fingertips, um, but I, I I me personally I, I think it would be trying to really re- in a sense regress people a- away from all those those distractions uh, of society and trying to be someone in 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 that paradigm and really more focus on on who they are. And 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 let them find themselves, and all, all also have all the good things like yeah. the, the the counselors, the therapists, the the the, the group talks where where everybody's uh, um, coming together and, and sharing and supporting each other, and then but also have like really like team building fun activities to show that like that recovery is fun, like like silly things, but like. I don't know, like everybody's, uh, tied together on a string. They have to get from point A to point B while all moving their feet together with all like, and, and just sort of stuff like that. Really like, uh, fun, goofy, but also, uh, very poignant team building aspects that, that, that make you a part of something greater because that's, that's what recovery is, um, it, it, it's you finding yourself and then becoming the best part of yourself to to fit into something greater, which is yeah. your life yeah. and your spirituality and your society. Um, so you Giving people options, options, isn't it? Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. i see say that. Yeah, Yeah, good call. Yeah. Um, what about you, Eric?
2: I would actually model it similar to uh, a treatment center I've been to. Um, so I mean I've I've personally been to a few inpatient treatment centers and this is actually not a tr- I wouldn't really call this the sure. ideal rehab center for someone who's just entering recovery. Um mm-hmm. this would be more of a focus around all right, you have a few months um and you need to start attacking the core issues. Cause one of the issues I, I feel like with a lot of the treatment centers I've been to is the population is too high and there isn't enough individual one-on-one treatment. Um, it's, I mean, it's kind of similar to like schools. Like you have, you have too high of class, um, of students to teacher, the student to teacher ratio is shit. And I feel like that's very similar to a lot of treatment centers where the therapist to patient, um, ratio is kind of shit. So, I would, ha- I would keep the numbers down, um, more one-on-one sessions. Mm-hmm. And because, I mean, group's great, right? And like, but group isn't going to necessarily take you to that place you need to go um, mm-hmm. where you can open up and be honest because it's just one-on-one and you know it's not going to leave the room. Um, group's going to leave the room. Uh, like, it's just, mm-hmm. it will. Like, that's just how people are. You know, you might enter a meeting and you think, like, what you're going to share is going to stay in there, but it, it might not. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I would – so it was called the, uh, the Center of Hope, and it was it was the best treatment center I ever went to. And I would kind of mm-hmm. model it off of that. We didn't have class and we didn't – our days weren't booked from end to end. Um, a lot of treatment centers, yeah. your days are like you wake up and you're doing stuff literally the whole day. Life isn't like that. Mm. Like you have downtime. No. Um and you need to yeah. be able to be okay with that downtime. Like like you were saying, Jem, mm. where you're like you're in these little bubbles. Like this treatment center wasn't in a bubble. Like I walked on the street to the treatment center. I was like staying in like a townhouse. Um, and, like, you had to walk up the block to where the treatment center was. Like, I could go and get a coffee. I could go and get something to eat. Like, I wasn't isolated in my own little bubble. If I wanted to go, like, have a drink or get high, I could go do that. But I was there to get better. Mm. And, like, there was someone who did do that while they were there, and they did get kicked out. But, like, you know, it it kind of – it's a treatment center for people, you know, who are a little bit further in. the recovery you know Mm -hmm. process but I don't Mm -hmm. know I think it's um maybe it's a it's a step after the bubble cycle if you have to do the bubble um because Uh I I don't really know if like the one thing that's bothered me about like some treatment centers is where you have the whole day because that's just not real like my my whole day isn't filled up with recovery (laughs) and like thinking that you know that kind of immersion of, of recovery is going to like, it creates this unrealistic expectation that can't be met when you go into the real world.
0: Mm. Yeah. 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 That's smaller. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love all three of those. Uh, Those are three completely different models of, uh, uh, treatment. Like I, I think Eric was right in the middle and, and, uh, Gem and I were kind of on the the, the far ends of it, whichever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's a good thing because, like, I think if all three of those places existed, I think they could be tremendously successful for various groups of people.
2: Exactly. Uh-huh. Recovery isn't and a single cool.
0: thing, right? Exactly. Yeah, if there was one model of, if there was a single model of treatment center, I think it would it, it would be very exclusive in a sense that it would not be very widely successful. And what were you saying, Jim? To me, I was going to say, to me, it goes
1: back to the to the AA thing. And as I said, there's no way at all I will sort of, I will talk AA down, but it, it does suit a certain sort of person that wants that very clearly yeah. defined roadmap. And not everyone mm-hmm. does. Uh, I'm one of the people that doesn't. And by the same token, some people in the rehab, want that structure because I've never had that structure but I often say to people you know people say you know oh so and so didn't do anything for me and I say well recovery isn't something that's done to you Something recovery is something you play an active part in and it mm-hmm. has to be it has to be a process that suits you and you know it's horses for courses isn't it different techniques suit different people as we just mm.
0: demonstrated yeah yeah yeah, that was a very good demonstration. Mm. All right. Well, I think we're about out of time, so we would like to thank our guest Jim for joining us. Woo! And, <laughs>
2: uh, and Jim, poetry where poetry snaps? Where, and where where can um, uh, first? Uh, if you want to read a poem, you can um, I'll do, do that, that yeah, and then yeah. um, let our guests know where they can find you.
1: I'll do that. I'll do that. Um, okay, the the poem I've, I've decided to do it's called "A Letter to My Future Self," and I did an mm-hmm. autobiographical set for my local group. And this covers the part of the part of my life which uh, which I haven't lived. Um, from I wrote it when I was sixteen. It covers that last decade. Uh, I hope to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a letter to my future self. In biblical terms, three score and ten is our allotted span. Six decades gone already. I have just one more to plan. I often write to-do to-do lists, but this time perhaps I won't. Risking negativity, I think I'll write a list of don'ts. Don't do things for your legacy. Do them because they're right. Don't think that you won't change the world because heaven knows you might. Don't mourn the things you didn't do because you can't change the past. Don't regret the things you actually did when life came at you fast. Don't waste a precious second of your remaining years. Don't forget to lend a shoulder when you see someone in tears. Don't stop gasping at the beauty of a Turner-esque sunset. Don't forget every stranger could be a friend you've not yet met. Don't believe it's only you who isn't capable and strong. Don't forget that everyone makes it up as they go along. Don't forget the light will banish dark, love will conquer hate. Don't worry when your God will meet you. He's quite content to wait.
2: Cool. Thank yeah. you. I like it. I love that. That
1: was great. I love well well Thank you so much. Um, oh, in terms time. of uh, sort of hooking up with people, if what people want to uh, to lock me up, I'm on Twitter as uh, Jen the Lyrical Gangster. Um, nice. My Twitter handle is at Helmet Hall. Um, I'm uh, just about to uh, publish a uh, collection of poetry I talked about before that will have about 45 to 50 poems in and it's uh, everything's done by the cover and I'll be publishing that to benefit a charity called the National Association of the Children and Alcoholics which is a British oh. charity with, mm-hmm. uh, with quite a few um, patrons so uh, with your permission guys I will let you know when that's coming out and perhaps you can Give you the push when it comes out. I'll be publishing online Absolutely. and uh, physical hard copy, and uh, the initial print run will be will be crowdfunded. Um, so basically, the deal will be ten or fifteen pounds sterling gets you a signed copy. Uh, so that's that's coming up. Um, if you also, if you look on YouTube under the name Gem Stewart, which is Stewart S T U A R T. Uh, you should find a couple of examples of me doing a bit of stand-up, stand-up the comedy. Uh, so if that floats you boat, have a look. Um, there's one particularly at the place called The Wardrobe in Leeds, which was my first uh, big gig in front of about 400 people. Um, it'd be interesting to know how it travels across the Atlantic, because it's about, it's basically, it basically sounds very dull, but it's about spelling and grammar which is perhaps mm. the preoccupation of us Brits I don't know uh, <laughs> so yeah by all means have a look uh, for that for those sets
0: alright awesome sounds great I, I have one last quick question go on who's your favourite poet? Uh, my favourite poet is a guy
1: I don't know if you've heard of him he, he's the guy that really I met him and he brought me into this daft world of poetry um, a guy mm. called John Cooper Clark.
0: Okay,
1: um, Well worth Sorry. a Google, he's, um, he's from my part of the world uh, in the sense I'm originally from Manchester in England and he's from Salford, which is a, a town next door, if you like, or the city next door. But he was very much the prototype of, of performance poetry for me. He used, to, he used to support punk bands like the Sex Pistols and the Buscocks and people like that. And he used to regularly oh. get bottled off the stage. Um, and (laughs) he's 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 a fascinating funny you talked about Velvet underground he he lived for quite a while in Manchester with Nico oh cool Uh, they shared they shared um, should we say similar chemical hobbies at the time Um, (laughs) he's a he's a recovered addict and of course Nico had a long standing addiction but yes they weren't boyfriend girlfriend apparently they were flatmates Uh, so that's (laughs) your connection with John Cooper Clark so there you go
0: all right.
1: Mine's Walt Whitman.
0: We're curious. Yeah, yeah. I know a few of his, yeah. I uh, love Whitman. All right. Well, we're about out of time. So, again, thank you. Um, thank you. One, Absolutely.
1: It's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you, Bill. Thanks so
0: much for having me. Absolutely. To so hear a podcast recovery, we are aiming to expand the scope of support for recovering addicts accessibility and convenience of helpful services is paramount to combating addiction we work to bring the message of recovery to every addict wherever and whenever it is needed we believe that a powerful voice of recovery should be obtainable practical and at the touch of a button every addict deserves to hear a message of hope and podcast recovery is here to provide it all right everybody thanks for joining us make sure you check us out on facebook twitter instagram youtube for more information about All your lovely hosts, um, uh, Eric, Allie, Carly, and I go to podcastrecovery.com. But most importantly, everybody out there, stay safe and stay clean.